Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. Turn to the person next to you and say, you being here makes church so much better. It's true, it's true, and if maybe you've been away for a while, maybe, uh, you know, Christmas had you away from gathering together, maybe you're newer, we just want to say, welcome home. We're on mission for Christ, we want to make him clear and accessible, and we want you to be a part of that. We want you to be a part of what God is doing here. Welcome home. We're in a series called Redeeming Your Time, Redeeming Your Time as we enter the new year. And we're thinking about last year and what happened last year, what we want to happen this next year. We're just reminded that time is such a precious, precious resource. We can't buy more of it even though we want to. We can't spend it all over again. So redeem your time. And, and, and this, is a, this actually comes from um, one of Paul's writings in the book of Ephesians. This is kind of the foundation for a couple weeks as we talk about this topic, and it's out of Ephesians chapter 5, and I'd love to stand and just read this together. Ron, you can bring the gain down on the mic just to skosh if you would, please, and thank you. Let's go ahead, stand together, read this aloud with a loud voice just to honor God's word. Let's read. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Redeeming your time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. All right, y'all can have a seat. Thanks for reading that with me. Paul would say, your time is precious, redeem it. Some of your translations might say, make the most out of every opportunity. And if we're going to look at someone who did that consistently, it was Jesus Christ. And, and honestly, I know that y'all are busy because every time I talk with someone, how are you? They'll say, oh, I'm just, I'm just so busy. As busy as we are, Jesus would have more demands on his time. His inbox would be full. He'd have requests for interviews. Everyone would try to be trying to text him. And yet in the middle of all of that, you don't see someone who was just hurried beyond measure. He was more productive. He was more present. He was more purposeful with his time. And so we want to take our cues from the author of time. How did he spend his time? And so we're looking at five principles that we can extract from how Jesus lived about how we can redeem and how we can spend our time as well. The first one, kind of a foundational truth, is what we talked about last week, was that Jesus offers us hope. Jesus offers us peace before we do anything. The picture of Jesus in the boat with Jesus in the boat, we can smile at the storm. Every time I say that, it just comes to my mind, right? Because Jesus is in the boat with us, his disciples didn't have to do anything, even though they were feeling swamped by all the demands of the environment around them. He offers them peace before we do anything. He gives us peace with God. He gives us peace with, with ourselves. You know, the anxieties that we feel inside, the pressures that we experience on the inside, he gives us peace in that space. And because we have peace, because we don't have to earn God's favor, we now are not trying to, like, do what's right because somehow God would love us. I instead, we want to do what's right because God loves us. We want to serve him and worship him. See, it gives purpose to our productivity. Jesus offers us peace before we 
do anything. And I'm just going to give you principle number two as we start, and then I just want to unpack it through the rest of our time. Principle number two. Principle number two is this. If we're going to redeem our time the same way Jesus did, is that we have to let our yes be yes and our no be no from the smallest to the biggest commitments that we make. Let our yes be yes. Let our no be no from the biggest to the smallest commitments that we might make. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. This is going to be page 660 in the orange Bibles underneath your chairs. If you don't have a Bible, take it. It's our gift to you. We would rather have it used. Page 660, Matthew 5, verse 33 through 37. This is a, a segment that Jesus preached. is his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And as you work through the Sermon on the Mount, there's kind of this formula that Jesus walks the people, the listeners through, and it's this, it's you, you have a way of living, you have a theological grid, you have a worldview that says this, and here's what I'm going to tell you. This is how you need to take, how you understand the world, and maybe how you operate, and, and I want to challenge that, and that's precisely what he does here. He says this, he says, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, don't break your oath but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. So what's going on here? Again, Jesus is talking to particularly religious people. And what they would do is they would take God's word and kind of twist it and contort it to fit their own needs. That happens today even, doesn't it? Maybe you might find yourself not always trusting everything that you hear from religious leaders because of that. If you feel that way, I'm just telling you, you to love Jesus because he really poked and prodded at these religious leaders because here's what they would do. They would take what God actually said and then they would twist it, modify it, contort it so that it fit their purposes. So he said, hey, you've heard it said, you have this model, this worldview of, not, of don't break your oath but fulfill to the Lord the vows that you have made. Now the challenge is this, is that actually sounds pretty good. And, and they were partially right because they were quoting from actual words of God. Here are the actual words of God. This is what it says in Numbers 30, verse 2. It says, when a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word but must do everything he said. And that sounds pretty good. Like we would all agree that's, that's, that's good living, right? Another one, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, don't be slow to pay it for the Lord God will certainly demand of you and you will be guilty of sin if you don't. So th these, these are things that were part of God's revealed word, and clearly we see things like this, like don't perjure yourself, don't swear falsely, don't make a commitment to do something, and then you don't actually do it. The problem was this, the problem was that the Pharisees got to work on this, and they looked at what God actually said, and they would come up with this formula to fit their own needs. They would say this, they would say, well, it's not the substance of your commitment, it's the formula of your commitment. So they would say, if you have sworn by God's name or by the temple or something that's sacred, then you need to fulfill that oath. And we would all agree, that sounds like something you should do. But then they would say this, well, I never promised by the name of God or by the temple, so I'm not bound to that. They would take God's word, they would twist it, they would contort it to give themselves an out. If I claim God's name, then I have to do it. If I don't claim God's name, then I don't 
have to do it. They created these pockets in their life of saying, well, this really matters, but this doesn't. They would say that, you know, well, if I made a promise before God or I'm in the temple courts and I make a promise, then I need to fulfill that. But let's say I'm not in the temple courts, I'm just in the marketplace and I make a commitment to buy this thing, then I don't actually have to do it because it's the formula of the commitment, not the substance. And so they were segmenting their lives into things that matter and the things that don't. This is sacred, this is secular. This I have to honor, this doesn't matter. And before we might think, well, that was just those religious people from old, we don't do that. We actually do quite a bit. The church has actually been pretty bad at this. And it actually comes from a Greek idea called the the Gnostics. Um, uh, The early Greek philosophers would believe that anything that is spiritual is sacred. So anything inside of me is sacred. Anything outside of me that's physical is profane. That's the way the Greeks thought about things. And, and, and so they would say, this, is, this matters, this doesn't matter, so what happens inside of me, what I ingest, now get this, this is, this is for free, okay? What I ingest, what I bring inside of me, that needs to be made sacred. So you know what they would do? They'd bless their food before it came into them. Because the profane was coming into the sacred. Do you know that that's not written anywhere in Scripture? Blessing your food. I ch- find it. Find it. I've, I mean, you can prove me wrong, but I haven't. The only thing you ever see is Jesus when he was multiplying the, li- the fish and the loaves. He gave thanks and multiplied it. He gave thanks. Give thanks for sure. But all things that are received with gratitude are sacred before God. And, and this sacred secular distinction that we actually do all the time. Well, I've got my church people, and I'll act one way around my church people, but those are my work people. So I'm not going to cuss when I step into church but I'll do that at work. Do you, do you see how we can do the same kinds of things? I've got the things that matter and the things that don't matter, but to Jesus, and we're gonna see this in a moment, it's all sacred. And actually the Jewish, the pure Jewish way of thinking is not the sacred and the profane. It's, it's all something that God sees. That's why Jesus says this. He says, I tell you, don't swear at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And don't swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. He's saying the formula that you are using to get out of these commitments that you've made, maybe you didn't have the fortitude to say no in this particular instance. It doesn't matter what the formula was because God touches everything. And he sees everything, and everything is sacred. It all counts. So I'm not saying... Like, cuss in church, I'm not saying that, right? But treat your world just as sacredly as you would treat this space. It's all one, it's all the same. He's saying, if you have a formula for what you get in and out of, it's irrelevant. To God, it's all sacred. We don't get to chop our lives into things that we do get to honor and things we shouldn't honor. It's all to be redeemed. And so Jesus then just summarizes this. It's so powerful. He just says, so simply this, all you need to say is simply yes or no. Just say yes. Just say no. And and then he goes on and he says, this is, uh, what, what he's really saying is you need to be people of 
integrity. When you say yes to something, mean it. When you make a commitment to do something, do it. Now it's interesting, James is, uh, James is the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, which, pause, if there was ever a compelling reason for Jesus being the son of God, it's James, because if you have a sibling, I've said this a bunch of times, if you have a sibling, what would it take for you to believe that your sibling was the son of God? And yet James believed it to the point of dying, and James just summarizes what Jesus says. He says, let your yes be yes, and let you know be no. We need to be people that keep our word, that keep our commitments. And, and so Jesus goes on to say this. He says, anything beyond that comes from the evil one. Having to shore up your promises. Having to come up with a double promise. Man, I'm, I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying to you. He says it's, it's from the evil one. Because the evil one is the father of lies. That's just his native tongue. Anything beyond just having your word be your word, having to shore it up, having to say, no, I really, really, I really promise I'll be there. I know I wasn't there last time. I know I didn't show up when I was supposed to. I know I would, told you I would help you move, but then I didn't help you move. This time, I promise I really will be there. I mean, you, you, can, you can call me if I'm not there. He says anything beyond just saying yes and no being a person of integrity is from the evil one. Don't swear by anything. Now, it's fascinating. Again, I'll put, I'll put my Bible nerd glasses on for just a moment. It's fascinating. Throughout history, there were some um, church groups, the Anabaptists, and actually that's a part of our faith heritage. They would say, because that's true, that we shouldn't swear by anything, I can't, in a court of law, in a legal sense, say, I swear that what I'm saying is true. They would refuse to do that. So you know what they would do instead? I affirm that everything I say is truthful. It's kind of the same thing. I don't really understand the distinction. But it, it poses an interesting question. Is that what Jesus is saying? Is there a blanket, you know, forbiddenness and swearing at all at any sort for those of you that have to deal with work environments where you have to swear, you know, like what I'm, you know, I, my clearance or whatever's behind this, I've got to be really, have a lot of integrity. I'm, I'm bearing witness on this. Is that something that we're forbidden to do? I don't think so, and here's why. Because God swears by himself to Abraham when he gives him a promise. I swear by myself, God says. Now, he's not doing that to lend credibility. He's doing that to build Abraham's faith. And later on, Jesus, then, uh, as they were investigating Jesus and putting him on, tr on trial, they said, I, I charge you under oath. Is this true about you? And Jesus doesn't bat an eye about saying, yes, it is as you say. So I don't think that that's a blanket prohibition. We're not forbidden from doing that. I think it's that honest people, they don't have to resort to that. Think about it when you were in elementary school. If you can remember back to those days, you know, you saw something amazing. I saw a dog and it was five feet tall. It was huge. I'm telling you, I wouldn't lie to you. I, I swear on my Nintendo. And you're like, oh, I don't believe you. No, I swear on my mom's grave, right? That's how we would talk about things, always adding another layer of embellishment onto that. Commentator John Stott says that swearing and oath-taking is a pathetic confession of our own dishonesty. Why do we find it necessary to introduce promises by some tremendous formula? I swear by the Archangel Gabriel or by the Holy Bible. The only reason is that our simple word is not likely to be trusted. Think, think about what happens in our relationships when trust is violated. 
really trust is that the foundation of all of our relationships. If I'm going to be in a relationship with you, it requires that I'm vulnerable with you and I'm going to reveal weaknesses in my heart. And if you told me, you know, what's said in life group stays in life group, but then you went and you talked about it with some other people, all of a sudden I don't feel like I can trust you because that, that, that what you said, your word, you, were, you, never, you never fulfilled that. And now I can't make myself vulnerable to you. Trust is the foundation of relationships, so it has this huge impact. If you've ever had a friend or a child that was a, a habitual liar, and then the next time they say, I wouldn't lie to you, mom and dad. Ooh. Yeah, you would, and you have, and I can't trust you. You'll have to earn that back. It has a, it has a huge impact on us. And when we make claims, when we say we'll do something, but we don't, it ought, at the end, it devalues human language and promises. Christians should let their yes be yes, and their no be no from the smallest to the biggest commitments that we make. But you know what, as I think about our time and our management and how we get things done, and, and you know, like I know I've said this commitment, I don't know anybody that really thinks this way. You know what, I want to be someone who follows through on what I want to do, but I, I, I'm just going to lie about it. More often than not, it's this, I have the intention of being there. I want to help you move, I said I would be there, but I forgot I forgot I had this other thing going on. I have too many things to do. I'm juggling the balls. I'm overwhelmed. I have the intention to do what I've said I would do, but I just don't follow through. I put it in my notes this way, that intention without implementation is just a sentiment. So if I have all the in intentions in the world that I'm going to be faithful for you, I'm going to help you move, Chris, when you need me, I, but I don't actually implement it, I don't actually structure my life in order to fulfill those, those obligations, then that's a nice sentiment. But I'm not reliable, I'm not faithful, I'm not true to that person. At the end, it takes this, it takes execution, doesn't it? It takes execution, and that's where most of us most of us have a challenge in that domain where we might fall short. We want to get it done. I, I really want to get, get that done, but there's just so much that I'm, I'm just busy right now. I have so much on my plate because we have distractions. We have demands for our time, and it's coming from a hundred different directions. I'm thinking about this thing that I said I would do to you, but then I check my email, and like, oh, I forgot about three other things that I should do, and then my calendar pings, and it says, don't you forget you need to go to the friend's birthday party, right? And then, and then, and then you have this text message because, oh, yeah, you got to remember to pay your Verizon bill. That's going to happen, and all of a sudden, I can't keep track of the commitment that I just made. It's coming from a hundred different directions, and we feel scattered, and we feel unorganized. David Allen wrote a, a massively successful book called Getting Things Done, and he calls those kinds of things open loops. You've ever heard that term before, an open loop? Here's what an open loop is. An open loop is any commitment that you make to yourself or to other people to do something. Any commitment that you make to, if it's big, if it's small, if it's urgent, if it's distant, that you've made to yourself or to others. So these can be things like, oh yeah, I got to get new mower blades because the spring's coming around. I need, I need to do that. I need to do that. I need to do that. Oh, I, oh yeah, I told my mother-in-law I would send her the new photos that we took of the family. I, just, I need to do that. I need to do that. I need to do that. 
oh, um, oh my gosh, I forgot that I've got this emissions that I've got to get checked on the car, time for the inspection. They're nagging me about that. I got all of these things. You know, I've got to respond to Lori. She wants me to serve in Grace Kids. It's really important that I respond. Amen? Amen. <laughs> an open, an open loop. Something that a commitment that I've made that I need to follow up on. And the thing is this. You and I, we're not processing two open loops. Maybe not even five. We can have dozens, if not hundreds of them, all at once. And God never made our brain to be able to focus on that many things. It's, it's a focusing instrument, not a storage medium. And so all of those open loops have this massive impact on us. It's almost like RAM memory in a computer. And as that gets completely fooled, all of a sudden the machine just starts to bog down. It's like the suspension travel on a vehicle. You know, when you've spent all that suspension, all of a sudden a small bump and you're going to feel all of it. And when we have these open loops, this is what happens in our lives. It makes it impossible for us to be fully present. I'm sitting down and I'm having breakfast with you and I care about you, but I'm just thinking, emissions report, emissions report, emissions report, emissions I gotta check, I gotta go swing by Ace Hardware and I gotta get this thing on the way home and I just can't be fully present with you. Second problem is this, is that as those things kind of crash in on us, we have all these open loops, eventually we're like juggling, we're juggling, you know, and then eventually we're just gonna drop a ball. We're going to fail to do something. And if you don't believe that's true, how many offers have you received lately for a free trial? Because Netflix and Spotify know if we just get you to agree, we'll give it away for a week or for a month or for an entire year because I am so confident that you're going to forget that you even had the subscription in the first place. That I subscribe to a subscription, I pay money for a subscription that tells me all the subscriptions I forgot about. They're so confident that that's the way that our, our brain works. The RAM gets overfilled. And then probably the most significant is when our RAM is bursting in the scenes, when there's no more suspension trouble, when we have all these open loops in our brain. Ultimately, it leaves us with this pervasive feeling of just anxiety and stress. There's a story, a story about Mozart, a composer, when he was growing up and he would spend a night out on the town and he came home late at night, he would find his father, Leopold, fast asleep. And so he would play a trick on his dad, who was also a musician. He would go to the family piano, and this is what he'd play. He'd play a, an ascending scale. And he'd stop there. He's fall, he'd stop one short of finishing the scale, knowing hilariously what would happen in his father would come back, would, would wake up from his sleep, go to a stupor over to the piano and play the last note as every musician in the room is just inside screaming for this final note to be played. Da! And it's completed. It's done. And then he would fall asleep and just laugh at his father. Have you ever had that happen where you're listening to a song on the radio and it's this horrible song and it pops on the radio and you shut it off and, and yet that song keeps playing over and over the jingle or the song that just takes up this mental real estate in your mind. You shut it off and yet it still has this taxation on your brain. Baby shark. Do, 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 do. What are the other songs? What are they? Shout them out. What are the songs that get stuck in your head? 
What's that? Okay, all right. What else? What are the other songs that get stuck in your head? Cars for kids? I don't even know these. My gosh. How about the theme song from Caillou? Oh, it's horrible. What, Dakota, how about you? What gets stuck in your head? Okay, all right. What, why is it that the worst songs get stuck inside our heads? Why is it? You know, there's actually a scientific term for this. It's called the Zagarnik effect. It's when uncompleted tasks or uncompleted melodies take up real estate in our brain. And we play them over and over and over again. We call them earworms. And they have a huge impact, these Zagarnik effect, these tasks that play over and over in our brain, these open loops have to have a huge impact on how we live. To prove this, a psychologist, a well-named psychologist named Roy Baumeister set up an experiment in Florida State University in which all of the participants were asked to think about an important project that was on their minds. One group of the participants were given no further instruction while another group was asked to write down specific tasks that they need to do related to the project. They weren't asked to complete the task. They were just supposed to make a plan for exactly what they needed to do at some point in the future. After they received that, they then moved on to, an appear, uh, to, to what appeared to be a separate experiment. And they were asked to read the first 10 pages of a novel. And upon completion, the team asked the participants a series of questions to gauge how much their minds were distracted by their looming projects. In other words, they were trying to discern which participants were able to stay the most focused as they read the novel. And the winners, the group who wrote down their future tasks by a long shot, even though they hadn't finished the task or made any palpable progress, he says, the simple act of making a plan had cleared their minds and eliminated the Zagarnik effect. So what's my point? Baumeister explained, if you've got a ton of items on your to-do list, the Zagarnik effect could leave you leaping from task to fa task, and it's not going to be sedated by all the good intentions that you can have. If you've got a memo that has to be read before the meeting, the unconscious mind wants to know exactly what needs to be done next and under what circumstances. But once you make a plan, he says, then you can relax. You don't even have to finish the job right away. You still got a ton of things on your list, but for the moment, he says, the water is calm. And isn't, isn't that what we want day to day? Just to have like, calm waters for once inside our minds and our anxiety and our anxiousness. Don't we want that? And the amazing thing is, the way that God made our brains, we don't even need to finish the plan. We don't even need to we don't even need to complete it just by writing down that next action step. Just by externalizing this internal anxiety can free us from that and move us one step closer towards execution. And that's the task, isn't it? The task is taking this internal anxiety and externalize it in something that can be trusted now, I, I want to talk about this in two kind of domains here this morning. The first is just going to be hyper-practical, like silly you're even mentioning it in church, but I think it's important and I think it's helpful. The hyper-practical application 
is that we would commit to taking these internal things, these open loops, and committing them to a commitment tracking system. And it's not about an app. It's about a workflow. It's about somewhere where you can take these things that you need to do and simply write down what that next step in that plan actually would be. This is something I've been trying to, I, I do this a lot. I'm, is, are any of you listers? Like you got to travel and you're like, on my packing list, if I don't get the packing list done, we're no good. Like I think every house has a lister. I don't know. I'm, I'm the lister in our house. And we'll travel somewhere and I'm like, have you made a list? I don't need a list. It's all in my head. I said, that's the problem. We're going to forget, and then we get halfway there, and it's like, oh, I forgot that thing, and I'm like, oh, if we would have made a list, right? So this is a little bit my heart language, but even as I process this last week, my goal is to be present with people as I, I'm talking with them. So I'm thinking this, okay, well, my carbon monoxide alarm went off last night, and, and I know I need to get a new one, and I can have this open loop, or I can just simply stop, and I can say, order a new carbon monoxide alarm, and my mind can let it go. And now I can be present with my friends and with my family. That's a commitment tracking system. This isn't rocket science. It's just taking these things that loom inside of us, writing it down so that we can get to it at a later point. Now, it's got to be something that's actually accessible, that's portable with us. So I love you day planner people. That's awesome. But if it's not with you, it's just going to chew up compute cycles. Right, so if you've got it at home on a desk, that's awesome. It was said that Abraham Lincoln used to keep in his top hat a little piece of paper where he would scratch all of the ideas that he would have. That he, she's a history lady. She's telling me that's true. I love that you nodded your head. Thank you. What's that? There you go. So he had it portable. He had it with him all the time. One of my favorite authors, legit, he really is one of my favorite authors. He's got an amazing book on the brain and music. Daniel Levitin says this. He says, writing tasks down gives both implicit and explicit permission to your brain to let them go, to relax its neural circuit so that we can focus on something else. Remember, it's not that we actually have to complete them. It's that we have to get them out of our heads where it's taking up real estate and bring them into a system where we can get it done when you need to get it done. We have anxiety. That's the way God created us to be. And we have to get it out of our head, out of our heart, and into something that we can trust. Now, we're tempted to think that Jesus never had anxiety like that. Do you know that's not true? You know why it's not a good idea to gauge your direction in life on whether you have anxiety because you know that Jesus had anxiety as he was heading towards the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane? He was so distraught, this anxiety that was inside him, it says he was crying tears of blood, a sweat, it was sweat blood, it was this, this major anxiety moment. And the reason he needed to be in the garden is because he had to take these anxieties that were inside of him and trust it in an external source of power, an external source of of peace that was deeper than what he was physically feeling on the inside. Now listen, that's cute and everything that we've all got a list, but that's true for us spiritually as well. The Apostle Paul in Philippians, he knows that this is the way that our brains work. If you're feeling like I've got this, this constant open loop issue in my life, man, that's all of us. That's every single one of us. If you're a student, you're feeling that. If you're at home, you're feeling that. Paul knows this, and this is what he says in Philippians chapter 4. See, this isn't just a, a physical thing. This is a spiritual thing. He says this. He says, do not be anxious about anything. Well, thanks, Paul. That's real easy to do. 
No, 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 listen. We've got to take it out of these anxieties that we feel. We've got to take it to something external that can bear the weight of that. He says, don't be anxious about, it every, about anything, but in every situation, in every situation, when you've got the test at school, when you've got the bill that you can't pay, when you've got this trip you're getting ready to go on, when you're wondering about, man, our finances are about ready to shift and change. I don't know if they're going to stay with me or if they're going to leave me. I don't know if my boss is going to leave and now there's going to be this vacuum. In every situation, he says this, by prayer and petition. What is the, the, the vehicle, the mean, right? And physically, in our, our tasks, we write it down in an external system. Spiritually, what is, the, what is the mechanism by which we take these things that are inside and we spiritually put it upon something that can bear the weight of it? It's by prayer, by petition, by sitting at the feet of our Father, by going before His throne, and it says this, with thanksgiving, ha <laughs> With thanksgiving, how many of you, when you're feeling anxiety, are like, I'm so thankful? Yet this is what he says. God, I'm thankful. What do I have to be thankful about? God, I'm thankful that I know I'm worried about finances, but you know what? We've been in this in the past, and you never left us. You never forsook us. When I, I didn't know where it was going to come from, and yet you provided, and we had more joy in that time. God, I'm so thankful. You see, that, that gratitude is such an important piece. I've got to look back, and it'll help me look forward. With thanksgiving, it says, present your requests to God. Tasks, we write it down. Spiritually, these anxieties, we take it to something bigger that can bear the weight of our anxieties. And he's saying, we've got to bring it to God. We've got to present it to him. And he says this, this is amazing. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. This is, this is amazing. He's saying, I'm gonna give you an exchange. You give me your anxiety, and I'm gonna give you my peace. But you've gotta leave, you've gotta leave it here. And when you do that, he says, it's gonna guard your heart. How does it guard your heart? Well, here's what I know. I know in my life that every time that, that, that I'm feeling anxiety and I feel like I've got to like make decisions from that place of, well, if, 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 I, if, I, don't, if I don't step in and, and do things this way, you know, I, I've got to control it. I've got to micromanage it. I've got to see that this is the outcome that needs to happen. Every single time I do that, I live to regret it because it's about me manipulating. It's about me controlling. And how many times does any of us like to be manipulated and controlled? We don't, and so it just sabotages relationships. It's not living in trust. When we have God's peace, it means this. I don't have to do that. I don't have to control the calendar. He says, give me your anxiety. I'm gonna give you my peace, and that's gonna guard your heart and your mind in, in Christ Jesus. It's amazing. It's profound. This is something that, that I, I was speaking with a young man um, this last week, and he's making some major strides to follow Jesus. He's not there yet. And he said, you know, my life went sideways and I was making some bad decisions and I, I didn't know how to get out of that and I just decided to stop and just pray and talk to God about it. And I don't, I can't explain it, but I just experienced God's peace. Now that's, that's profound, it's true. We've got to walk in that. If we want to redeem our time, you know, these open loops that we have, yeah, we've got to write it down, but we spiritually got to take it to God. Now next week what we're going to do is 
I'm excited to talk about what we're going to talk about next week, about silencing the orchestra of noise in our own head. It's going to be powerful comeback for that. But what I want to do just right now, if we can, is we just, in these last moments here, as we conclude, I want to spiritually check in about these things we've talked about today. I want to ask the band to come up, but if you would, just close your eyes, and we want to take a moment. It's not just about gaining information. This is about aligning our hearts with God. So if you'd close your eyes for just one moment, I want to ask you some questions. When you think about, when you think about your life and being a person whose yes means yes and no means no, kind of that domain of integrity, if you were going to ask your spouse or your kids or your friends, how they've experienced you. Are you a person whose yes means yes and your no means no? Is that, is that true about you? And, and every week when we have these moments of reflection, you know, the, the, the call, the response is this surrender. It's not resistance, but it's just saying, God, I, 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 I confess this is an area that I need help in, and maybe you can just stand before God and you can articulate that. But maybe you can't, and you can just say, God, help me to live that way. I want that to be true about me. I want to be a person of integrity, of wholeness. And it's not just true with the words we say, but it's true with how we commit to do things, the tasks that are in front of us. And so the question that I put in front of you is, how would your spouse, your kids, your friends, how would they reflect you as being a person who does what they say they will do? Are you reliable? Are you reliable? And would you go to God and just confess that if you feel like this is an area that you fall short and ask him for help in that? It's what, it's what we do when we experience God's word. We just, we confess it back to him. We petition him for help. This is what we do. And then lastly, because I know we're all human beings, there's so many of us here in this space here where if I were to ask you, hey, you know, can you name an anxiety? You could say, I can name four or five. <laughs> and so maybe this weekend you needed to hear, be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and petition, present your request before God with thanksgiving, and the peace of God will guard your heart and your mind in the Lord Jesus Christ. And would you, as we sing this song, would you just bring that to him and say, God, I am very tempted to control and manipulate in this area because I have anxiety. And even as you worship, you know, this posture that we have with our hands open, that's a surrender posture. And that's what we're doing when we worship. We're saying, God, I'm surrendering before you. And, and I want to offer up to you this anxiety, this relational anxiety, this legal anxiety, this financial anxiety. Would you bring that to him? And by the way, this is not a thing that's done once. It's done every single week. I've been following Jesus since I've been, in, since I've been five. Every week I come into this place and I surrender before you, oh God. And it's a daily thing that we do. So this is just a refrain that we've sung over and over and over here in our hearts. And we constantly want to respond to what God, what his word says. God, would you help us be, and we just pray and conclude our time here today. Would you help us to be people who our yes means yes and our no means no. And we're not looking for ways out. But we want to be people when they think about us, they say we're, they have integrity and we're going to rely on that. 
And God, help us to be people who commit to do what we're going to do and do what we've committed to do. And Lord, would you receive our anxieties and would you trade that in for the peace that you offer. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.